Oh, yes. This is the Hardcore Marketing Show. I'm Casey Cheshire, your host for this epic journey. And today's show, sponsored by Cheshire Impact, on a mission to help people maximize their use of Pardot and Salesforce. CheshireImpact.com. Bam. Yeah, here we are. Ready to rock and roll. Hey, my guest today is very cool. I can't wait to introduce you. He is a keynote speaker. He is an author. He's a consultant on two very powerful concepts, social media as well as influencer marketing and how those two things converge and how to really leverage that in a business setting, right? Uh, author of the book, The Age of Influence, host of a podcast, Maximizing Your Social Influence, teaches at Rutgers, also the CEO and principal of PDCA Social. Neil Schaefer, welcome to the show, sir. Hey, thank you very much, Casey. It's a pleasure here. So here we are, we're on Zoom. We're just, I'm excited to pick your brain and learn from you here today. I got, I got to say, like our theme here is all about influence marketing, understanding that concept and how to really leverage that. So I want to pass you something real quick. Hold on, it's kind of heavy. Okay, here you go. You got it? Thor's nice. hammer. You got it? Okay. Oh, wow. Awesome. That was, that was good. Normally, it you know, falls to the floor, but that was a good one. So take Thor's hammer, smash for me some kind of nice marketing myth, bogus strategy, misconception. Just set the record straight once and for all. All right. So, well, I, I recently wrote a book on influencer marketing. So I guess that's where I'll start. Yeah. And my background professionally, I know we're going to get into this later, is actually B2B sales. So let's first begin by breaking the myth that influencer marketing is only for B2C or consumer brands. Not smash. true. I, I wish I could. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Just smash, <laughs> smash the monitor. Be like, oh, wait, never mind. <laughs> there we go. Um, no, the influence is everywhere. And let me take a step back to my days selling semiconductors, selling embedded software, selling network software. There are always different pieces of the puzzle, right? There are always integration partners. There were system integrators. Yeah. There were other companies that if I could engage with them, I could get access to leads. I could get access to introductions. I could validate the deals in my pipeline if they were real or not, right? Right. So the notion of like influence in sales and B2B business has always been there. Yeah. But what we're talking about now is out there in, in the digital world and social media and digital media, are there other people that can help provide access to a community that we're trying to target? And the answer is yes, right? And smart B2B companies have been doing this for a while. But when you think about it, so, you know, you're all fans of Pardo, obviously. You got, yeah. you got your sales force, you got your email marketing, your marketing automation, you're probably creating content for your blog, oh, you're yeah. doing SEO, you're doing organic social media and more of that's, you know, sort of pay to play. So you're doing like paid ads on, on LinkedIn and Twitter, Facebook, yeah. what have you. Got a you. podcast. You got a podcast, right? Maybe YouTube, I don't know. But yeah. what else is there? As you spend more and more money and time creating content and buying ads, Right. With the, the good thing is that, you know, the Pardo piece is, is extremely high ROI, as we know, but we need to feed it constantly. Right. How do you get above and beyond that? And that's where we get into influencers. We get into other people out there and real simple, you know, who are the people that the, the people you want to target? What content are they consuming? Who are they following in social media? What are they you know, searching for on Google that they're finding answers to that you don't have? Right. right. Who are these other bloggers, YouTubers, people on LinkedIn, people on Twitter? that are either creating content around or talking about topics that you're also talking about or that you want to talk about or are attracting a community that you want to tap into. That's really what it comes down to, right? And it might just, might just be people. It might be companies. It might be people that are companies, that consultants, mm. but it might also be other companies that you might be able to collaborate with in this traditional sort of B2B, you know, sales ecosystem uh, uh, paradigm. So, you know, who are these people? And there's a lot of different ways you can work with them. And in fact, if you're listening to this, you might be naughty because it's like, man, I've already been doing influencer marketing without knowing it. Yeah, it's right. Inviting, inviting influencers to interview on your blog, inviting them to guest host a webinar, right? Uh, asking 10 influencers, 10 industry experts for their ideas about where, where we're going in the next 12 months. All these things, you're tapping into other people that have a community, that ideally you want them to promote your content to their community, right? And mm -hmm. a lot of them do just naturally because we're people. Mm -hmm. That's influencer marketing. 
Mm -hmm. right? You're tapping into people for that. And really for B2B, one of the biggest areas you do this is through events. And literally, you know, Adobe once brought a bunch of influencers to their Adobe summit. They paid for, you know, travel, you know, airfare and hotel. And they had like 20 of us and we're, you know, our combined reach on Twitter was definitely in the millions and just, Hey, enjoy the conference, tweet away, right? Here's the hashtag. You want to do interviews with Adobe executives? Awesome. We'll get you set up, right? Um, And it just over like the course of three days, it, it, it just generated so many impressions about the event. And this is something any, any business, any small business could do if you're doing an event. You know, virtually it's a lot harder to do, but we do have these virtual summits, which are sort of similar. Yeah. Invite these people, right, to, to speak. Yes. Uh, influencer marketing for B2B does work and it's quite savvy and you should definitely, if you haven't been doing it as I described, you should definitely start to pull out who are these people that we can reach out to and start to develop relationships with. Yeah, start looking around. I think, I think too many times we're thinking, oh, that's just an Instagram thing for those consumer brands. But no, what you're describing, I'm Adobe is a perfect example. Hey, come on in, everyone. Like, let's, let's create some FOMO around this event for next year. Like, hey, if you're not here, but you're hearing Neil talk about it, you're hearing other people mention it, maybe I'm checking it out next year. You know, um, at least it's got my attention and I recognize the brand now. And it makes sense. What's like, is there a first step? Um, is there a first step to this? You're like, huh, I haven't done any of this and this, I got to get on, on board with this. Where do you start? I would start just real easily with just keyword searches, right? Okay. Keyword searches in Google, you know, depending on your industry, but like LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, wherever you might be. But you know, who are the people that are talking about this, right? So you have content creators. So those are the ones who already have podcasts. They already have YouTube channels. They already have blogs that are actually talking about it. People that are... Uh, not necessarily creating content, but have an interest in it and are sharing content and maybe building up a network and doing so. This is what a lot of salespeople do with social selling. Hmm. Uh, they learn that if they share content that's relevant to their you know, target audience, they, they build that leadership and they build mind share and they become sort of the, the trusted person to turn to when there's a need to buy a product or service. Right. So um, you know, who are these people? That, that would be more like LinkedIn and Twitter, right? You, you find people that are talking about the subjects Totally. But I would also say there's another thing, and I mentioned social selling as a hint. So, you know, even someone with like a thousand followers in influencer marketing industry has influence. Yeah. We call them nano influencers, right? So more and more companies have people that already know, like, and trust them that have some influence in social and really beginning with your own employees. If you have some of your salespeople are really, really active on LinkedIn and they've been crushing it there, and they, they're at 500 plus connections, whenever they post something, they get lots of engagement. Those are influencers within your own company. Yeah, they are. And the bigger your company, that you, you know, the greater chance you have some of these people, but these are people that maybe you should think of doing collaborations with. Um, let's go beyond that. What about these ecosystem partners that I talked about? Influence. If they're crushing on social or, you know, um, they're already doing webinars, like, hey, can we do one together and share the leads, right? That, that's mm-hmm. a no-brainer. And when we go beyond that, we look at our own customers. Why wouldn't you bring your customers into your own content for like, not just case studies, Mm -hmm. but you know, once again, events, and maybe some of your customers have influence as well. And we go beyond that. We then look at our followers, right? Who are, you know, who's following our company page? Um, Who is, uh, you know, who's a Twitter follower Yeah. and mapping out, Hey, we might have influencers under our nose that we just didn't realize. And finally, you know, we begin to look at who's talking about our company or brand or product. So these are people that may not be employees, they may not be partners, they may not be customers, they may not be followers, but they're talking about us. So there's some brand affinity, right? They right. may be a customer, they may be considering us. So those are really, instead of you know the traditional influencer marketing for Instagram is let's try to find the person who has the most followers, let's you know do it the other way around and let's try to find people who already know, like, and trust us and try to find those among them that have some influence in digital and social media. They're, they're participating, they're sharing content, they're right. creating content and you're going to find people that already have, you know, they already know, like, and trust you to some extent. It's going to be much easier to collaborate with these people. And you're going to get a lot of great ideas once you reach out to them. Wow. A thousand followers is a nano influencer. What do you call someone with over 200,000 followers? So it begins with like celebrity, right? So celebrity oh, start, start at the top celebrity. Yeah. Then you, it's like macro influencers. 
And I think that the macro influencer, I don't know, like 500,000 and above. And there's no one definition. This is what one company put out this, this, uh, okay. this image that's been shared really you know, a lot. And I used it in my book as well. And then 50 to 500,000 is sort of like mid-tier influencer. 10 to 50,000 is micro-influencer. And that used to be the, the popular buzzword a few years ago. And now more recently, this 1 to 10,000, the nano-influencer. The reason is because these people haven't, probably haven't bought followers. And they're not buying fake engagement. They're right. they're more authentic, yeah. and um, they have a you know a more niche community, and and you know people are more engaged with with these smaller influencers. When you get to the celebrity, the followers are all over the place. Yeah, you know, we don't know why they're following the celebrity, but when we get to one of these more niche, you know, this is like a Pardo influencer. You're not going to find a celebrity who's a Pardo influencer. You might find a few nano influencers who are. And it's like wow, you know these are the people that that definitely if we want to align with someone around you know our product these are the people we want to be talking to so that's another reason why those have become really popular but some of the nano influencers even having 500 so you know it, it wow. it's just if there's someone with like a thousand followers like you know they put out something on linkedin they get like 30 engagements right mm -hmm. when was the last time a post on your linkedin company page got 30 engagements and no, for most seriously. small businesses yeah it's crickets right yeah so, so uh, that's really what it, it's not the amount of followers. It's the amount of engagement and it's the relevance of that engagement. Right? Um, right. So these are the things to think about when we think of influence. And that's why with the way the algorithms are so skewed towards people over brands, this is another reason why you have this emergence of, of a lot of people that have some influence. Um, and if it's a lot, if it's, you know, aligned around your company's product or service or industry, it makes sense to develop a relationship and see where it goes. Yeah, that, I mean, that's cool. And as you're describing the different tiers and ways of thinking about it, you know, I think about um, Matt Sweezy is kind of the guy. I mean, he works at Salesforce. He's the original Pardot guy. So he's kind of like, I mean, I guess he's kind of my, micro, though in, in our little world, he's like the guy. He's the celebrity, um, right? Right there. That's true. Yeah, he's right. kind of a celeb. I mean, crafts his own beer. I guess it makes him a celebrity. <laughs> There you go. But, but underneath them, you have people that probably formally work for Pardo or other people that still work on that team that are also creating content that yeah. are talking at events. But then you have a lot of people like yourself that are like Pardo experts and you've been creating content around Pardo. Sure. Um, and then you have, okay, well, I'm like a nano. You know, <laughs> yeah. Well then you have other people like, you know, they talk about other solutions in the market but they maybe they handle multiple solutions. So they have really deep domain expertise in, you know, marketing automation, for instance. Okay. Um, so then you, you know, when you broaden it from product to industry, including your competitors, you begin to see, wow, there's a lot of people talking about this, you know, just from your scenario case that you could be tapping into. Right. Um, yeah. So yeah, that, that's, that's, you know, basically, you know, we know that the modern buyer is, you know, digging on the internet for information, right? To help them make a better buying decision. So you want to make sure you're seen. And if you're not seen, you want to hopefully be working with the people that are seen, right? To, uh, to increase the chances that you get seen. And with the way that, you know, social you get people on your pixel as well. So this is another right. way to do it. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, broadening yourself, um, you know, especially if you're, if you're so niched in to talk about just uh, Pardot, you know, um, or one, one product, but to sort of broaden that and, speak to the industry as well. Absolutely. Well, you, you, know, you mentioned the, the engagement and I, I think, you know, this is something else people are wondering about the idea of, you know, you mentioned even earlier, do we ever get the 30 likes on a post from our company? You know, that content we're sharing, do people look at that? I think there's a lot of people that think that, you know, that, that kind of content isn't consumed socially, the sort of B2B content. What's your take on that? I'm trying to, I need a hammer, man. Yeah, you need some crushing need to break another myth. Smash your wall with your fist, Thor. <laughs> B2B content, the engagement on B2B content is really different. And, and Casey, I, I mentioned this to you, this conversation I have with one yeah. of my Twitter followers. He's like, dude, you're like verified. You have all these followers. Why do you have like such few likes? And I'm, I'm like, dude, you don't see the clicks, right? Huh. I don't think the B2B buyer, people that are consuming B2B com content, they're not doing the likes. I mean, maybe they do a share once in a while and a comment, but they're clicking and that you don't see the click analytics next to you actually go into your analytics dashboard analytics to see right. it, right? That's how people engage with content at B2B. And for me, I'd rather have a link click than a like. Comments and shares are awesome. Don't get me wrong. 
But the like is like, you know, yeah, maybe it gets exposed to more people in the algorithm. But at the end of the day, if you don't get the click, you're not going to get people back to your website. Right. So that's the engagement. And it cracks me up. And, you know, I, I do this with, with clients of mine. We do these competitive audits. And it's like, well, we don't know how many people are clicking on their links. We can, mm. you know, see how many likes or if they don't get any likes. But we, they may have a ton of people clicking on things. And th that content's doing really well, even though we don't see it. So you always want to remember that. You don't want to be analyzing your social based on likes. And, and right. you know, you don't want to just go through your feed. You want to go to your analytics and say, okay, maybe Google is my number one driver of traffic. Well, believe it or not, Twitter is my number two driver of traffic, right? Hmm. I get way more traffic from Twitter. Pinterest than I do from LinkedIn, believe it or not. Yeah. So that's where, that's what I focus on. I look at the yeah. channels that are doing good, focus there. The ones that are doing bad, I try to figure out and improve upon them. But that's the way, you know, you need to be really data-driven in how you do all this. And you can't just be looking at likes. It comes down to, are you, you know, for most B2B companies, they want to get traffic back to their website. And that's what you need to be looking at. Right, right. It's not like, why are we approaching our, our uh, B2B social, like we're underwear models on Instagram, right? It's like, I'm not, I'm not in it for the likes. It, 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 but to your point, you got to be able to see behind the scenes. I mean, you can't see that. You're, you're, you need to fix that. But like, you can see you've got a bunch of clicks. So that's cool. Hey, likes are fantastic. But you know what? Like, I'd rather you consume this. Pay the bills. Click on it. Yeah, pay the bills with a click for sure. Makes total sense. What makes this the age of influence? Um, and, and you know, is is some things been changing around town that makes this a you know it's not a new concept, but is, is there something about and maybe even just the COVID or now? What's what is it about right now that makes this so topical? So I think, you know, when, if you look at like the history of social media marketing, yeah. you begin to see that number one, it's getting a lot more visual yeah. and you know, visual leads into talk about Instagram, but even LinkedIn is getting way more visual than it used to be. And we know that videos do really well. We know that, you know, chicks with green hair, like get millions of views on their videos on LinkedIn, right? I don't know a girl with green hair, but I do know uh, a guy with blue hair. Okay, well there's, yeah, there's a famous one in, in, in marketing circles that, that I hear about a lot, uh, Goldie, Goldie Chan, I think is her name. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, so the video is huge, right? And brands and businesses are just not used to like visually presenting themselves, especially in B2B. Right. It's, it's all text. And if it's a video, it's like a boring interview with a CEO, right? That's mm -hmm. not the stuff that people want to see in social. So, you know, but it's easier for people to just get up there, like what we're doing, right? And create content, get yeah. up there on video or like create video snippets of the interview here, right? And get them up there. Yeah. So this is, you know, one of the things that's happened over the last 10 years, it's really changed social media is the emergence of like, how do we show ourselves visually of even like, you know, even casual photos do well on, on things like LinkedIn that didn't usually really? happen. So huh. how do businesses, yeah, how do businesses, because it's showing the real you, right? Yeah. So how do businesses adapt to that? And it's really hard for a business to humanize themselves the way that people can because they're, they're not people, right? Yeah. Um, and people always resonate better with people than with businesses. So that's like the first trend we've seen that's led into the age of influence. The second trend is that, um, you know, the algorithms favor people. And Zuckerberg said this, like, marketers already knew that, you know, if you want to incite word of mouth in social media, it's not going to happen from a company page or a fan page, right? Yeah. Um, it, it comes from people. And unless you get people talking about you, you're not going to get word of mouth in social. So how do you get people talking about you, right? And that's also where the, the influencers come in. The third trend is that, uh, is that people trust people and they don't trust ads. Right. Social's pay to play. We'll just do more, you know, paid ads. Um, well, number one, everyone's doing that. So acquisition costs are going up. Yeah. And people don't trust ads, you know, um, like, but it's they true. trust other people. So people are going to be the best ways to market your company if, if they can talk about you in social. So, and you have more and more people that are actually publishing content. Like LinkedIn has never been, you know, LinkedIn has been around forever, yeah. but not everybody publishes content on LinkedIn, right? It just wasn't something you did. You did a lot of searches, you did prospecting, you didn't necessarily post a status update, but you know, Instagram is full of like hundreds of millions of people that are like uploading photos, right? Oh, yeah. Or Facebook as another great example or Twitter. So and the stories too, they just evaporate yeah. after one use. It's crazy. But you have just more content creators, right? More people that are creating yeah. content and in doing so they build community through that, right? Because people find their content, they follow the hashtag, what have you. So, yeah. um, and you have a whole generation of people now that, you know, they're digital natives. They were on Facebook when they were in college 
Well, it's like 10 years later now. So this is a big part of their life. They use it way more than we did 10 years ago. Right, so, right. so now you have all these different trends point to the fact that, you know, people just have a lot more influence than you think in social media and brands have a lot less influence than you think. And really, if you want to get word of mouth going, if you really want to leverage social, sure, everything else doesn't go out the window. The Pardo, I mean, dude, you need that for your business, right? And sure. the ROI from email marketing, marketing automation is awesome. But if you really want to do stuff on social, right? If you want to get out of the, the traditional digital blog, email and marketing automation, you got to do something with social. And there's still, you know, there's still budget for paid social, but leveraging influencers is really something that's going to help. It's going to help your pixel. It's going to help your content. It's going to help your marketing automation. You're going to build up your list if you do it right. It just helps everything else do better. And guess what? It actually brings the social back to social media because you're developing yeah. relationships with people. Yeah. And you know, my days in B2B sales, it, dude, it's all about relationships, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, in the background, we have the marketing automation, but we're also trying yeah. to increase the number of touches we get with our, our prospects so that oh, yeah. we build that relationship digitally. But it all comes down to freaking relationships. So, yeah. Do they you know, like you? Yeah. So, you know, networking, not just with your ecosystem partners, having relationships, not just with your clients and prospective customers, but including these digital people, these digital entities yeah. that are speaking to the same community, networking with them and developing relationships, mutual value with them. That's the age of influence. That's something that, you know, just is going to provide more and more value now because more and more people are creating content and influencing others. Totally the age. It makes, makes perfect sense. You got the trends all going in that direction. And, it, and there's some value to it because I think we were a little, we were a little OG, a little old school back in the day with a lot of promotion. I like, I like the communities happening where what you post actually matters and, yeah. um, and there's power to it. I, you did say something though that was interesting because I've talked to a lot of brand people lately um, who are all about, you know, the brand is not dead. You need the brand. Brand is love and sex and everything. And, um, and yet, I, you, you know, you had said people over brand, and I get where you're going with that, right? Sure. Just to Facebook, it's not going to be coming from the, the brand page. It's coming from people. Dude, people own the brand, right? You can do your best to try to portray your brand in a certain way. But at the end of the day, it's all how people talk about your brand. And you can't control that. Right. You can't control that customer experience. You can try your best to give them the best customer experience they want. But at the end of the day, it's people. And, it, and, it, and we're going on to Yelp. We're going on to TripAdvisor. We're going on to like B2B software review sites. Yeah. We're looking for like reviews on blogs. Yeah. I mean, the, the buyer is looking for how people talk about your brand, right? And they're not just talking about the product. They're talking about your customer service, right? They're talking about their experience, all of that. So if you really want to build your brand digitally, you want to have more people talking about you. One, one of my clients early on from my agency, this is a B2C brand, but they mm -hmm. provided sort of a, a baby health product. So if your baby was between six months and three years old, this is a product you'd want in your household to have a healthy baby. So the target was like mommy, you know, uh, moms and, and we work with mommy bloggers. Yeah. But you know, the director of marketing said, you know, when I go to Google and search for a product, no one's talking about us, right? All we see is like, the only thing that comes up is our corporate and maybe our Amazon page. And wow. that's it. I want to be, I want to have our Google search results flooded with people talking about us. Yeah. And that's influences, right? Right. If they're not, yeah, you need, you want them talking about you. Otherwise there really isn't anything happening. Yep. And that's every small business owner I talk to. How did you get big? Word of mouth, word of mouth, word of mouth. But so if people aren't talking about you. That's where they come in. And maybe if it's like your Pardo, it's like, man, when we do, when we use analytical tools, there's way more people talking about Marketo than, you know, or Adobe than Pardo, you know, you're losing to the competition digitally, right? You need to, you need to incite more word of mouth. So yeah. these are, if you're a big brand, that's sort of the KPI that I'd be looking at, sort of social share of voice. But yeah, yeah, I mean, it does come down to, we're finding now it does come down to like advertising, relationships. We're sort of getting back to the basics, right? It's that stuff that drives demand. How do you, how do you manage the relationships at like a one-to-many scale? Because I, I get you on the B2B sales side where you're just like mano y mano. How do you do that? I mean, how do you do that even with, you know, 200,000 million followers? Dude, so this, it's so funny. I have so many marketers ask me, they're like, dude, what's the tool we can use? <laughs> like easily find who these influencers are and then like mass message at once. It right. Yeah. Where's the SaaS products? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't work that way, man. It really doesn't. And if it did, it's not going to be successful because yeah. every influencer is different. And it's, you know, 
you have a sales pipeline, right? Yeah. So you have a hundred prospects. So maybe if you're working with Casey and you have a really well-defined, you know, automation and social scoring and trigger automations in place, you can be really savvy with sort of automating that relationship with each one of those prospects in your pipeline. But at some point there is a personal. Oh yeah. has to be. There's a, there's a phone call, a personal, whatever, a a visit when we get get done with pandemic with with COVID-19. It's the same way. It's the exact same way with influencers. The problem is until you get them into a program, you can't set up those automations. You got to reach out to them. Now you can set up an automation. You reach out to them and then a week later you do a follow-up. That's, you know, if they, if they didn't reply, that that's really easy. But at the end of the day, every influencer is going to be very different. You know, if you were to get access to the CEOs of the 10 biggest prospects in your territory, would you immediately put them on an email automation? No, you'd call right. them first, right? It's the right. exact same thing because you're reaching out to people that have influence. Why would you want to screw yourself by potentially, you know, uh, them not receiving the email or, or them reading through that this is clearly automated or the message yeah. didn't, didn't resonate with them, right? So yeah, it, it, it's people related. Now, here's the thing. It's like the 80-20 rule. You're going to reach out to people. It's a sale. You're not going to convert everybody, right? So, but you are going to convert some people and mm-hmm. you're going to treat them. That's, that's the 80-20. You're going to focus on them. And as you get going, you're going to realize, hey, we did, we did joint webinars with 10 influencers, right? And yeah. two of the top, two of the 10 drove 80% of the attendees. Well, yeah. you're going to do a hell of a lot more with those two and do less with the eight and try to find new people, right? And to, to supplement. So that's how it's all efficiency. And it's, it's the exact same thing as a sales pipeline. Just, it's going to be a lot harder to automate that, but get a program going. Hey, we have a new event coming up. We'd love for you to, you know, attend. Yeah. There's, there's sort of messaging and communication that you could automate one to many, but until you get to that point, yeah, it's the personal touch, man. There's, there's no other way around that. Yeah. I think sometimes we do the knee jerk reaction to like, how do I make this scalable? It's like, hold on. If you just got one, like the most popular person in your industry, one of them talking about you, how, how would that be? And you're like, amazing. I would love that. Cool. Get just get one. Don't worry about the nurture campaigns and all these other things right now. Let's just, let's go personally reach out to some of these people and see if we can, you know, win them over kind of thing. And I'm unique in the marketing world in that my background was originally B2B sales. So yeah. I consider influencer marketing closer to a sale, a sale, a conversion yeah. than marketing, which is generally one to many. Sales has always been sort of one to one. So I think right. those salespeople that are listening to this, I know yeah, I got a lot of marketers, but if there's any salespeople listening, I think this is a natural. In fact, a lot of companies will have like PR people do the influencer stuff, right? Because it, PR people are used to doing one-to-one sort of, you know, media outreach, what have you. So it's more akin to their skill set than, than maybe a marketer. I totally get it. You're building rapport. You're whining and dining them. Well, any tips on this? I mean, how do you approach? Let's say, you know, you have an influencer out there. You've identified a couple of them, get a little list going. You want to reach out and build, get something going here. Any kind of tips or guides on how to do that? Yeah. So number one, so this is like, if, if any of you have ever had training in social selling, it's, it, it's sort of not much different. Okay. You want to create rapport with them in advance okay. before you reach out to them. Because if you reach out to them, it's like a cold call. So true. So they pick up the phone. Um, there might be an answering machine. Doesn't mean they're going to call you back. So you can do a cold outreach and just send them an email or a direct message or a cold email. So what you want to do is you want to use social signals, right? These are different things you can do in social media to digitally tap people on the shoulder you know, like their content, follow them, add them to a list, comment. And, you know, trust me, no matter how influential you are, if you like on a weekly basis were to comment on one of their blog posts or have a conversation with them in social, they'll, they'll remember you. Yeah. And then you do the outreach at some point you want to reach out to them, whether it's, you know, on social media, whether it's, you know, on their website, a lot of people that have a lot of people reaching out to them for collaborations or for inquiries, please, you know, fill out this form. You know, I would stick with whatever they want, but if you're active with them on a certain platform, I would send them a message in the platform, you know, really enjoyed your content. You know, we're big fans here. I think we have the same mission in serving our communities. We love to figure out if there's a way to collaborate, you know, do you work, do you work with companies or with brands? How do you normally collaborate with them? We have some ideas as well. Love to have a phone call with you and, and you know, do a brainstorm, see how we might be able to help each other. That's really the open-ended approach is going to be great because everybody is different in what they want, right? right. It, some it, of the influencers yeah. want money. Some would love free access to your product. 
Um, some want to build their list. They'd love to be able to do something to help them build their, you know, everybody's different. So the, the big mistake a lot of companies make is we'll give you a $25 Amazon gift card. And if you're a savvy B2B sales or marketing person, you're saying $25 for two hours of my time is, it's not worth my time. So right. that's why, yeah. So you don't want to impose your ideas to them. You want to hear what they have to say. And every influence is going to be different and you're going to end up having different types of relationships. But what's going to be really interesting though, when you find really experienced influencers, you're going to learn the things they do with other brands. So mm. you're going to get ramped up in influencer marketing really soon mm. just by having that open-ended conversation. How do you work with brands? What are the things you've done before? What sort of results can we expect, right? How many people do you think you could bring to the webinar if we did one together? Things of that nature. So that's, you know, yeah. it's a natural, you know, it's like I go back to my solution selling days, right? You're sort of providing a solution. You're sort of augmenting their own marketing of their personal brand of their company. And it's like, what are, you know, what are your pain points? How could we work together? Yeah, no, I totally get, it. you know, when I, when you first described it, I'm like, oh, interesting, but totally, it's, it's it totally, it's a sale, right? It's a, it's a relationship and they like you, they are going to keep chatting, but I, like to your point, you didn't just hit them over the head. I mean, sales, right? You don't just cold call them, hit them over the head. You're liking their tweets. You're retweeting their posts. Like you're just, you're sharing their stuff. You're one of their followers, one of their fans for a bit. Maybe they start recognizing your name. And then you're like, look, I, I keep it up, keep going. I like your stuff. Maybe we could work together, not imposing your, your will on them or something. Here's my question then. Um, how do you deal with an influencer that doesn't like you? Or maybe, maybe you've already got a, re a reputation in the industry and you weren't mindful of your influencers and you've got people out there that aren't really, I mean, what, how do you, any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, so here's the thing. Um, not everyone's going to like you. Okay. That's okay. There's tons of people out there that can help you move on. Okay. You lose a deal in your pipeline. You haven't closed. There's been no progress in three months. You need to take, you need to delete this from your pipeline. I don't want to hear you talking about it again. Right. Delete it from the pipeline, move on. And guess what? At some point when you start working with other influencers, mm. there is a domino effect. And then an influencer goes, huh? That company's working with all these people. Maybe they're not as bad as I thought. Or one of the common things that brands do to me, it's like when they work with me as an influencer, it's like, Neil, is there anyone else you recommend that we should be talking to? And this right. is some question. It's like, hey, any other like companies in your industry that would you think would, that, you know, in your personal network that would find value in our product? It's, it's like the sale, right? Asking for referrals. Yeah, for referrals, yeah. It's the same thing. You're asking for influence to referrals. And if you get enough people saying, man, have you talked? Well, you know, we sort of had a, we, we sort of had a bad experience with Bob and now we're, you know, we're a lot smarter about how we do things. You know, we'd love to like re-engage with him. Do you think he's the type who, you know, if you gave the introduction, he'd be open for another phone call and yeah, you use other people. That's great advice. And you know what, your sales background, it, it, it makes total sense. That's what should happen. That's you what know, you and, do, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you shouldn't get wrapped around the axle about that one, that one deal that's saying no guy, there's like, five other ones that, that might say yes right now, get going. Don't I, worry I, about that one. I will say this goes back to my sales background. The biggest deal, the, the seven figure deal, which ended up being the biggest deal I ever closed working for the startup software company was with, and I did this in Japan, right? It was a Japanese company, but oh. it was with a company that ended up, we were in like a one year eval, long sales cycle, right? Mm -hmm. And it turns out they chose our competitor. Ugh. And even though they chose our competitor, I, I went to visit the, the decision maker. I said, you know, I'd really like to just have a word. And I totally, I'm not going to try to sell you. I just, you know, I want to learn more about what we could have done better and how we might support you in the future. And he was so, you know, he thought that there was a lot of dignity, a lot of in how I presented myself and how I represented the company that when they failed using that product, he ended up calling me a year later. Mm. Say, Neil, I'll never forget when you came up, when you showed up, even though you had lost the deal. And I know it was a big deal for your company that you showed up with dignity, with honor, with wanting to serve our company. And we, we'd like to give you the opportunity now because things are not going as well as we thought it would be with this other company. Right. Wow. And sometimes there's grace, there's grace in defeat. Right. Yes. And that ended up being my biggest deal. So, and every salesperson has their, their war stories and what have you, but, but yeah, there's, you know, it's okay, but you, you never want to burn any bridges with influencers. And if you do end up burning a bridge, you want to have dignity and say, you know what? We screwed up. Yeah. You know, just be human. Yeah. We, 
we messed up. We, you know, we, we've been schooled on influencer marketing. We realized that <laughs> we really damaged the relationship. We don't expect you to make up with us now, but we're going to do our best to serve our joint community. And mm -hmm. hopefully a day in the future, we'll be able to collaborate together on some project and, and, you know, leave it like that. Yeah, no, that there's so much to that. Um, and your, your background. So many companies, so many companies, right. You know, they, they're looking for influencers. Please let us know about your terms and conditions. And then you never hear from them. It's like, okay, I get that you didn't choose me, but you could have said, Hey, Neil, we're really sorry. You weren't the right fit for this program, but we're going to be doing a lot more in your space. Stay tuned. We'll definitely keep in touch. Mm -hmm. Right. Very few companies go out of their way to do that. Just ghosting on people. Ghosting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not good. Well, you know, definitely makes sense. And I can see how your background makes you really good at this. What kind of people do you need? You mentioned it earlier, like salespeople can be really good at this. Do you find that it's salespeople in an organization that do this? Or is it like that hybrid marketer who likes sales that? It's can... normally marketers, right? Because it okay. falls into marketing. Yeah. Um, yeah. It might be PR. You know, there are some large B2B brands that have dedicated influencer relations people. Yeah. Um, or it's just outsourced to an agency. So, yeah, yeah, you'd think you'd want to keep that relationship one to one, but you're right. If they don't have the chops to do it, it is an yeah, asset. Yeah. It is an invaluable asset for any company to have. And now you're sort of exporting that asset out. So, yeah, if you don't have the chops, don't have the people, don't have the resources, yeah, you're going to use an agency. But yeah, um, normally it would be marketing. Huh. Um, wow. Any, anything you see a lot of people doing wrong with this? I know we've talked about the right and the wrong way, but I don't know. Any, what's the biggest mistake um, people tend to make when they pursue this? So I think we talked a lot about the major mistakes. Number okay. one, only following people because of the number of followers. That's sort of the biggest mistake. Number mm -hmm. two, trying to reach out to people that might not be relevant, but they have a big user base. So, <laughs> you know, you find someone that, let's say they blogged about marketing automation, right? Yeah. But then when you really look in their blogs, they're all about like digital analytics. Right. And then out of like the last hundred blog posts, they have one blog post about email marketing or marketing automation. Right. They're not really, you know, it's not going to be as relevant versus someone that might have less engagement, but is 100% only talking about marketing automation. You know, they're into that. So that's, that's a mistake that we often see happening. That the third yeah. one is obviously, you know, going, imposing your terms on an influencer mm. without sort of getting a feel as to what they want. Number four is, you know, reaching out to an influencer before you've built any rapport with them. Get the cold call. It happens a lot. Uh, you know, Number five is probably just not having a strategy and how you measure your success in place, right? So yeah. you have a marketing strategy. Where do influencers fit in? Yeah. And how are you going to measure that? Because at the end of the day, it's going to take time and you want to make sure that your, your, your manager, your report to understands the ROI, what you're doing so that you get more budget, maybe hire more people to help you do that as you see it helps more and more of what your company does. So right. you're going to be measuring this as well. You're not just going to blindly throw money away because it's the cool thing to do right now. So right. I'd say those are the five biggest mistakes. You know, influencer marketers, their top, I won't say mistakes, but challenges are always influencer identification, finding the right influencers, and then that ROI piece and, you know, mm -hmm. measuring it and, and improving upon it. But I think if you follow my advice, and, and the final one is you're always reaching out to people that have no brand affinity, that maybe because they have a bad experience for whatever reason. So right. um, yeah, uh, you know, start with people, like I said, I like can trust you. And hopefully all the advice I gave you is going to help you um, do things right, you know, from the beginning. Obviously, yeah, yeah. This, this book hanging there behind me is like the playbook for all this, but I don't want to go into self-promotion mode here. But No, no, I mean, you don't need to. I mean, got to get the book. book. Yeah, without reading the book, you get the gist of it in, in this conversation. But if you want to go a little bit deeper, yeah, that would be the playbook for you. Yeah, no, it's like tip of the iceberg, right? I'm, uh, this just gets me excited for it, where I'm like, okay, I want to do this. Let me get the instruction manual, you know. Uh, there's no SaaS product I can buy, but there is a book on it. So, um, and we'll put the book, the link to the book in our, in our show notes for sure. Uh, awesome. What do you see for the future of marketing? Future of marketing, future of influence, you know. I know sometimes we're kind of like focused right now in the COVID. We're just sort of stuck. But do you see anything coming around the bend or maybe some changes that are happening even now? Um, I think that's... Companies are going to be investing more in this type of influencer marketing, which is focusing on people that know, like, and trust your brand. 
Yeah. So we've called them brand ambassadors. Okay. That's sort of the term we use. There have been things like brand advocacy, things like employee advocacy and, and social selling ties into that. I think they're all going to be tied into these brand ambassador programs. And I think you're going to see companies building up their own social media armies of people um, that they're going to activate for, you know, different campaigns, different programs over time. Mm. So I do believe over the next five years, you're going to see a lot more companies. I already know in the influencer marketing industry, when I talk to other, you know, other agencies or tools, vendors or companies, there's a lot of companies that are doing this right now. And that's going to be a really, really important part of their marketing is sort of fostering this community, not like in social media, but on their own turf um, and really leveraging them, not just for like amplification of content, but for content creation, even for like product ideas, tapping into industry trends, right? So yeah. that's going to be the best way that companies can sort of humanize themselves, get word of mouth out there, uh, is going to be through these, these armies of brand ambassadors. And, and that's where if I'm listening to this podcast, I'd want to start dipping my toe in influencer marketing and figuring out how I can build that tribe, right? Um, up either from scratch or from the influencers that, you know, we've already worked together with. Yeah. And it, and it feels like one of those Best things on LinkedIn, it's always like, you need to do it when you don't need it, or you need to start now because you can't, to your point, like, you know, just randomly cold call a bunch of people, spam a bunch of influencers and like, here, promote my thing. It's like, it's a relationship. If, if you go from zero to push my product, you're going to get a flat rejection and probably a negative hit on that one. You know, COVID-19 is a great opportunity to, first of all, do the research and who to reach, uh, who to reach out to, yeah. but to develop relationships yeah. with influencers because everyone's home, everyone's online, everyone's consuming more content. It, it's a better time than ever. So there's some companies like, we're not, we're not going to do any marketing for the next three months. You know, well, cool. You're losing out because yeah. if you're one of the smart companies that are developing these relationships and when the pandemic is over, you know, you're going to be top of mind with influencers. You're going to be ready to go with launching your program. And, and there are ways you could be using influencers even during COVID-19 in your content because you're still developing content. Maybe there's more content related to like remote work or work from home. And maybe there are influencers that do a lot of talk about that, right? Yeah. Or maybe there are like marketing automation people that are already talking about that, that you want to tap into for your community. So yeah, yeah there's, yeah. there's things you can be doing now. You, you know, the companies that are pulling the plug, they're, they're missing out because my clients, they're, they're going full force ahead, full speed wow. ahead. They're doing a little bit things differently. They may be reducing their, you know, their, their LinkedIn ads or Facebook sure. ads or what have you, but they're still spending the time building on the infrastructure to get ready for that next level of growth once we're through the pandemic. For sure. And to your point, you know, you're not going to get your influencers via LinkedIn ad. I mean, you need to hit them up. You need to be listening and liking and listening to your signaling and then event, you know, pursuing them like a relationship, not like a PPC, you know, clickbait type uh, gathering process. Yeah. This is, this is really cool, man. You know, who are you, Neil? Like, how did you become this social influence celebrity, if you will? Like, can you take us back to like the, the, the little Neil days running like, around? Did you always know you're going to be on social and crushing, you know, the relationships and doing the B2B sales and all that? No clue, ma'am. Yeah. I, I will say that, and obviously I was, I was sort of, you know, I grew up before the internet and the first TV I had was like an eight inch black and white in my bedroom, right? So nice. we're talking really old here, you know, the, the boom box and the whole bit. But Do you remember um, when you first got the I internet? Was, uh, I first got the internet when I was college. in college and this is really before the internet. It was like this is if you wanted to send an email, you had to go into the, the computer lab at the university. It was, we were using like Usenet. I mean, this, yeah, wow. I'm aging myself here, but, but yeah, um, no, the internet. Yeah. It did not, we could print, we could print through the, the computer lab printer. And like I said, we could use their, their servers to, to use Usenet. And I was emailing some of my friends in another university, but yeah, I'd say really it was with America online in the nineties. Right. When the right. Totally. Totally. The 14.4 K right. US robot modem. Right. But, totally. um, it's funny growing up, I was really into like data. I was really into sports huh. and I was really into like baseball cards. And like, I could wrap off the statistics of like any baseball player at that time. Right. Wow. Um, and, uh, and, and so I really got into that and that sort of interest in like, in like data has probably always stayed with me. And I still have a love of sports, obviously. I got into music a lot. Actually, I played violin, which then became an electric violin. And wow. um, I, 
I ended up learning how to play the drums in Japan, which is why I have the drumsticks. We recorded two CDs and stuff. So no sort of like music and performing that's helped me like with that sort of like a rock concert ride. I get totally. all psyched up for Um, But, you know, I'd, I'd say the most influential thing professionally is when I was in university, I did my junior year abroad in Beijing and I was a, you know, wow. I was an Asian studies major. So that's where I studied Chinese. And then I was there during what they call the Tiananmen demonstration. So, you know, in there the were square like with the tank students. and all that. Yeah, I didn't see the tank. I got out before that happened, right? Good, I got yeah. out the day that martial law was declared. But, Jeez. but you know, I would like, I'd walk with the students. I have tons of photos as well. I would walk with the students demonstrating down to the square. It was like an hour walk, right? And I'd just sit down in the square, be bombarded by Chinese saying, you know, what is democracy like? What, what's it like to live in the United States? What is freedom like? Um, you know, how much do you get paid for work? I mean, just, you know, how much does food cost? Just all these wow. questions. And obviously this, once again, before the internet, people didn't have access to information then. Sure. Um, but it was then, and then it seen the aftermath. I actually went back a month after. And this is where I switched from Chinese to Japanese because at the time Japanese was booming and Japan was booming. But that left a, a last, lasting impact. And I thought, you know, I want to get into business. I want to be able to help. I want to be able to like engage with, with average people yeah. and in my own way, just sort of with everyone I engage with and exchanging information. Um, and I thought the best way I could do that was through sales. What, what was it like when you came back? When you came back, was it just like a different place? Things had all changed? Yeah. Yeah. There were, there were the, it was almost like you see the pictures of China under the pandemic or you see like the first few days after lockdown here, the freeways are empty, the streets are empty. Yeah. That's sort of... I heard some gunshots at night. This is a month later. I mean, it was still martial law. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was very gray. You could see like tank marks on the streets and some bullet holes and like some hotel glass. And yeah, it wow. was, you didn't want to go out at night. It was just, it was like the whole energy because before that, like I, I saw a demonstration of like more than a million residents, you wow. know, they, on their bikes, they would just tape a piece of paper, like, you know, freedom for all or democracy. Wow. For all. Just, real grassroots, you know, and they were all patriotic too. They were, oh, yeah. you know, they all had the Chinese flag. The students, when there was a line of police in front of them, they were saying, you know, we love the police, the police love us. And just to see all that energy and hope for the future, just completely, completely Jeez. taken from the spirit of that city, which is one of the saddest, most impact experience. So that's what really drove me to get, you know, I want to learn the language. I want to learn the culture, but I want to interact with people. And the more people I can interact with, the more I can contribute in my own way to mutual understanding. And, yeah. and like I said, world peace in a, world, in a weird way. Yeah. So that's sort of, you know, when social media came about and um, I was in transition for the first time in the U.S. when you know, LinkedIn was just getting going, it, it just seemed like a natural that I'm, I'm going to use LinkedIn now as a networking tool. Oh, totally. And um, it's going to help me not only find my own job, but I can help people and, you know, and contribute to my contribute to peace in the world in my own way. And, totally. and that's where I started using LinkedIn as a tool and building up a big network. And, you know, we used to have something called LinkedIn answers and going in there and, and answering questions and, and starting a blog. When I found my job, I just wanted to share the information I had and use it as a networking vehicle. And then, you know, um, the last time I was in transition after that, I got hired and then we had the Lehman Brothers crash mm. combined with the fact this company wanted to sell themselves off. So they just, they, you know, they're, they're like, we're not going to sell internationally anymore. So there went my position. Right. And some of you may be going through that right now because this right. is exactly what happened 12 years ago. And I realized, man, I'm so passionate about what I do and who I work for that I need to build something that no one can take away from me. Yeah. And that's your personal brand, man. And I started blogging. And it was really hard to find a job. My wife's like, why don't you write a book? I'm like, I don't, I don't, I'm not a freaking author. I don't want to write a book. But I ended up writing yeah. a book on LinkedIn and um, it sold. And I started getting asked to speak. And then I got, you know, hey, Neil, will you consult with us? And, and that was 10 years ago. So now I'm in my second decade of doing this. But that's yes. sort of how it all started. It's funny that, you know, um, write a book. And you're like, I'm not an author. And um Cause I, I just finished one and it's a, it's an experience to go through, right? It's, it's Ooh, like yeah. nothing anyone, to, it's by the end, I don't, by the end, were you kind of sick of it? You do get like, sick of it. And yeah. that's why, like, after I wrote my second book, well, it was really after I wrote that first book, it's like, I'm sort of done. I don't want to be just the LinkedIn person. I want right. to Facebook, Twitter. And that's why, right. you know, there's people like Viveka Von Rosen, like the LinkedIn expert and, you know, I have total respect for people and like sticking to niches. I got 
burned out of just sticking to one niche, you know? I wanted yeah. to be everywhere. So That's yeah. like writing a book to do that too. You're just like, oh God. It's like, this is my thesis, dude. This is it. Everything I know, it's out there. Let's now move on to bigger and better stages. But, yeah. you know, the most exhausting thing yeah. about actual writing, it's actually the promotion. I, That's true. I sort of think that writing's 20% of the work and <laughs> promoting's 80%. I'm still busy with promoting. It's only That's been, you true. know six weeks since my book was out so yeah you know, it, instantly you have that personal call to action i didn't realize that till it was on amazon and then i'm doing some linkedin messaging and then people are chatting with me i'm like oh that's my call to act and my books on amazon and my books on like oh i guess i have a call to action now that I, you know not just for your company but for you it's interesting totally. how all that changes totally. that, that's amazing that you were able to admit experiences like that uh, and to see that freedom squashed um, in China, is that then you like, let me go to Japan, like you're saying, because it's, it's starting to pick up and get exciting over there. And then you oh, just dude, it was the bubble economy. It's when, you know, we were worried that that Japan was buying too much of our real estate. And oh, sure. It, was yeah, those, they, yeah, Japanese companies are going to take over the world. Obviously, that never happened. But you know, there were American companies who were trying to study how Japanese companies work. So yeah. I thought, you know, I'm, I'm Southern California native, so I could like get a job here in LA and live the normal life, or I can start my career in Japan at a Japanese company and actually learn something every day just for the fact of being there, not just how Japanese companies operate. Right. And when I got the offer, I was a senior at university and you know, I, I took it and I, I spent the summer at an intensive Japanese program in Tokyo, which helped. But obviously learning Chinese first, I mean, it definitely helped accelerate my learning Japanese, but the first year I was doing stuff in English. I mean, I was not at the level, but you know, the great thing about Japan is it's a heavy drinking culture. so. Everybody, like every night after work, all, you know, go into the pub, which we call Izakia, you know, drinking. And, and I hated beer. <laughs> I was like the California cooler dude, but I learned to appreciate beer uh, in Japan. And yeah, just really awesome. I mean, if you're single, you know, being in Japan in the 20s and working at a company and just, you know, the, the camaraderie with colleagues, it, it was awesome. Yeah, I've had a chance to visit there a couple of times and um I just, I digged it. I, I mean, hanging out with the people afterward. And I think they took me, took us to a Chinese restaurant because it was like, oh, this is what we do. Let's go, let's get some, you know, some grilled meats and whatnot. And um, I just had a blast with them and the baseball games and everything. It was just really cool. Really cool culture. Well, if you could tell, you know, talk a little bit about working at a Japanese company, you know, and were there any kind of takeaways or just things that stuck with you? Um. It's very, well, in some ways it's not collaborative, but you, you know, first of all, just the way the desks are set up, everyone's facing each other. Oh. So um, you're, you're sort of always around people. You're never like in your own space. You're always part of this, this company. Okay. And, you know, when you work in that environment, every morning before you start, they would do a morning exercise, which I thought was really cool. When you're in your twenties, it's like, you know, WTF. But as you get older, I mean, just, you know. <laughs> Doing a few minutes of stretches before you start. That's awesome, right? You need it um, by the time you get a little older. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then you would have one person in the group, um, you know, say a one-minute speech to everybody else. Oh, wow. So about something timely or what they did over the weekend or um, – and, you know, you, you, you ate lunch. It was a pretty – you know, it had like 2,000 people. It was like a $2.5 billion company. So, Jeez. you know, you'd, you'd always have lunch together in, in, in the cafeteria – um, so there's obviously some things that are very similar to American companies, but it was, um, very process oriented, um, very systemized and, um, yeah, just, you know, whenever you wanted to do something or initiate something, there's something called nemawashi, which is very Japanese, which is, you're not just going to say, this is what we're going to do from tomorrow. You're going to start to like have meetings with people and say, you know, I've been thinking, I think we should move in this direction. What do you think? So you're sort of mm. building rapport. It's almost like sending the social signal. You're building yeah. rapport internally before you actually do something. And that's sort of a trademark of Japanese companies. That um, and, and often, another part about Japanese companies, they have something called a ningi show. So whenever you wanted to do something that was somewhat significant, in our company, it was anybody who wanted to spend something more than $2,000 to make that investment, yeah. they had to fill out a ringi show and they had to have stamps of everyone on the executive board. So, you know, manufacturing, sales, operations, the whole bit. So at the end of the day, you had to get consensus from people if you wanted to do something strategic. Interesting. And that's sort of, um, you know, something that I, I thought was really unique. On the other hand, 
uh, Japanese companies are really bad at marketing. They didn't really have a marketing division hmm. in a weird way. That the product people drove marketing. So um, that lack uh, of marketing. Man, I've been in a company where that was the case. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's all relationships, man. It's I mean, sales is all relationships. And yeah. internally, if you want to get something done, when I was in sales, and you know, my we were selling semiconductors, and when my clients' factories, when they were going down because their competitor couldn't support product and we could. And I look online, I see inventory. It's like, how do I get this out to Singapore tomorrow? Yeah. Um, you have to negotiate with, with, you know, the people that are responsible for manufacturing and say, dude, I need to steal someone's allocation. You got to help me out here. Mm -hmm. Right. It's, it was all really relationship driven. Even wow. you know, every company is like this to some extent, but in Japan, it was even more so. So those are really great lifelong, you know, learning, um, uh, you know, moments that I had. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, you know, that, that's, you know, I, I, it's funny, I haven't really worked that long in American companies, so it's sort of hard to compare. Uh, but, <laughs> but, you know, you didn't have people building their own kingdoms that like you have in a lot of big American corporations, mm -hmm. or what I find. You don't have people coming in from the outside and then all of a sudden bringing, you know, it, you know immediate turnover to the entire department. Yes. Japanese companies do not like to fire people unless they really have to, or like they're very loyal to the employee, they're, it's family. They invest a lot in getting them as part of the family. Yeah. So they're, they're gonna give people the extra opportunity. And if they don't like you, they wouldn't fire you. They'd move you to another department. And there was a lot of that that would happen, right? It's like, oh, so-and-so just got moved to purchasing. It's the end of the line for them, right? <laughs> yeah. But on the other hand, some people went to purchasing two years later, they moved up and you know they went back to manufacturing at a higher level because they, you know, they, they, they took well. the challenge and they showcased themselves. Um, and they stayed loyal and, you know, they made themselves known. So mm. yeah, just very, very different environment. Yeah. In interesting points though, was it, uh, was it, uh, Ni Nemo Washi? Was it? Nemo Washi. Yeah. Nemo Washi. Nemo Washi. And then the Ringi show. Ringi show. Yeah. Ningi show. Um, I could see that busting through silos. I could see, you don't, you don't have like some secret project that marketing's doing and no, no one's aligned with it because no one's aware of it because you had to get the stamp and probably literally a stamp from that particular executive. Yeah. What it, what it does is yes, you had a lot more alignment, but you had a lot less innovation. Ooh, because you had to less... preamble everything you were going to try. Yeah. And it, and it was, it was more group decision-making than a leader saying, this is what we're going to do. So just and that's the Japanese culture. You've heard, you know, the saying, the nail that sticks up gets hammered down. It's very true about Japanese culture in general. Right. So people learn very early on not to stick out. So where does innovation come from then? And that's where, right. you know, I, I think a lot of Japanese companies got really self-complacent in their own standing in the world. We saw this with NTT and NTT Docomo and that with iMode that went nowhere. Mm. The iPhone came out and boom, right? Um, we saw this with Sony and it's funny because I work with Sony and I provided them some really innovative technology. Yeah. And then at some point Sony said, we're doing so well with PlayStation. We're just going to use our own internal technology going forward. That that's what the, the, the policy of the new you know, CEO was. And that's when innovation died when they stopped looking outward and they only looked inward. Right. So, um, and, and meanwhile in Korea, at the same time, they're like, internet, this is awesome. We're all over it. And I'll <laughs> right? never forget, because I, I sold throughout Asia, I'll never forget meeting like someone, it was it was like an advisor to the CTO at Samsung. It was an American guy, and I met him in really? Seoul. Like 1995, right? Wait, wasn't that, well, maybe, okay, maybe a little bit later. But he's like, Neil, we plan to make Samsung a leading global brand in five years. And this is what we're doing. You know, what do you wow. think? I'm like, wow, that's really ambitious. I, you know, and they did it. I mean, they, they did, yeah. But without a doubt, right? Right. And they did the right things. And really, the internet was a game changer where um, they they accelerated innovation and they they leveraged the internet in, in a strong way. They built it into their products, whereas you know Japan was still focused on you know limited internet or yeah. like with, with iMode. And I, I worked in sort of internet technology, so I saw it, but just just really closed and yeah. really trying to develop a Japanese standard for technology. Whereas Korea was like, we're all over what's going on in America. We want to be part of it. We want to be part of the it. global standard. Right. Wow. Um, and that's really the big, and I think that that's, you see the, you know, Japan sort of declining little by little in Korea at the same time, just like booming. Right. 
So yeah, just it's it's a complete and you know I I got to sell to Korean companies, so there were some similarities with Japanese companies, but the leadership and the innovation were just very very different than what I found in Japanese companies, and I think that's what that's what ended up killing Japan. Now they're trying to build a culture of like startups and innovation and entrepreneurship, yeah. and they're getting better at it, right? But cool. whenever I meet these companies, and some of them hired me as a consultant, they're Japanese centric in their view of the product. So then when they so they do well in Japan, then when they want to export it out of Japan, it doesn't sell because the product really wasn't meant to meet the needs mm. of the average American business or consumer. Whereas, you know, Korean companies and Chinese companies to some extent built, you know, they built their product around global needs or yes. American needs or European needs. Japan was just very, very different. They really only look at their own market. So very insular in that way. So in Korea, I believe used to be that way until the 90s. So so yeah. Um you know, a lot of great things about Japanese culture, but a lot of things that have really hurt them. And I've always made it my role to sort of help them to, you know, open their eyes to the outside world. Yes, my my agency started by helping Japanese companies with their English online marketing, right? Let me help you bridge that gap, right? And give right. you product advice and and help, you know, help you serve people here. So um, that's, that. those are the clients I love the most. Yeah. Um, and I still work with some, like as a, in addition to agency, like as a fractional CMO, go in their office or remotely, I, I have one coming up in 45 minutes, you know, half day a week, really oh, helping them with their online marketing here. But um, different experience, but, you know, Japanese companies really value loyalty. They really value those that invest their time into like learning Japanese language. A lot of Japanese companies here have like free Japanese language classes. Yeah. And I think if you're, you know, it, it, it may be hard to get to the top because a lot of Japanese companies prefer to have Japanese people sure. at the top. But certainly, you know, showing that respect and loyalty and, you know, you don't want to disagree with leadership in Japanese mm. companies unless you really have your, your ammunition, your ducks in a row. And you can really speak to yeah. why you see things differently. Because in Japanese companies, when a leader is talking down to you and saying, why aren't you doing this? What they're really saying is you have to be doing this. So, right. you know, different culture, different ways of, of, of managing people. Uh, it's it's so fascinating. It's a really cool topic, and I'm, I'm sure we could talk our ears off next time we're drinking a Sapporo or Kirin or uh, <laughs> hey, where, um, or just where are you located? I'm in New Hampshire. Okay. Well, next time I'm out, I went to school in Massachusetts, so next time I'm back east. Well, oh yeah. Um, where are you at? Oh, you're in California still? Back to Southern California. Yeah, I went to Amherst oh, yeah. College. So we I will, we didn't do New Hampshire. We used to do alcohol runs to Vermont because the drinking age is 18 and Massachusetts was 20. So. <laughs> It, no, it makes total sense. You know, apparently New Hampshire has this uh, label of being the, uh, we drink the most beer per capita of any state in the United States. Awesome. But um, we have state-run liquor stores that are really cheap these days. So a lot of Massachusetts comes up to our stores and drinks it. I think that that gets, you know, labeled as like New Hampshire drinking, but really it's that, that border traffic coming in. Um, interesting. But it's a small world. You know, I, I could talk all day about, but it's interesting with the, um, yeah, I just even know the you know the history of Japan. They very much wanted to say nope, no one comes in looking inward. You know, continue looking inward because they've gotten, you know, they've gotten their their wrist slapped a couple times with some of the other countries around there. So like, let's just stay in here. Um, it it I but I could see the the value of having someone with that mindset on your team, right? We need to make sure our autos don't fall apart. Let's use some of the systems operationally, but then having some other person who's more innovative, or to your point, being able to you know, communicate and bring up ideas. It just, I guess whoever the, the leader is at the top needs to be able to handle the different kind of personalities on the team. And that's, and that's what Samsung did. Right? And that's why yeah. a lot more Japanese companies are bringing in foreigners. If you go to Tokyo, it's like, wow, a lot of foreigners living here these days. <laughs> a lot of companies realize that they want to innovate, you know, they just need to bring in someone from the outside world. But at the end of the day, they're not going to be the leader. They're more of like the catalyst to change. Yeah. Uh, but some of them could, you know, evolve into leaders if they knew the language and what have you. Right, right. Man, crazy. Hey, um, what, what are some of the ways we can connect with you? P people to reach out, learn more about you, follow you, get some more learnings, that kind of thing. Well, I'm Neil Schaefer everywhere. So I'm the real <laughs> Neil. Uh, N-E-A-L-S-C-H-A-F-F-E-R. Uh, whether it's on social media or neilschaefer.com. Uh, I have my own podcast called Maximize Your Social Influence. If you're interested in sort of this concept of influence and how it relates to digital and social media marketing and sales. Uh, I also have the book, The Age of Influence. You can find that on Amazon or wherever you do book shopping. And yeah, that's, those are uh, pretty easy to, to find me on social. 
That's perfect. You just basically pick a platform. Are you on TikTok? <laughs> I am on TikTok. Well, I, yes, I have a TikTok channel, not active. I'm currently lurker. Um, yes. I'm not the best dancer, so I don't know if it's going to be appropriate for me, but my daughter's on it and uh, it can be quite entertaining. Oh, it, yeah, there's, there's a whole other realm to that. I see you also have an audio book. That's great. Did you, read, did you read that or did you have someone read that? So I worked with a major publisher and yeah. the last book I wrote back in 2013 called Maximize Your Social, I worked with a publisher who got me set up in an audio studio and I basically recorded from nine to five, Monday through Friday, I recorded that audio book, right? Wow. And I really enjoyed the process. For this book, I was like, hey, I'm more than happy to go into the studio. And they go, you know what? We find it's just cheaper and better to hire a mm. professional audiobook reader. Here's five to choose from. And these are people that have read some pretty, you know, pretty uh, heavy selling books. Yeah. On Amazon, I found someone that, you know, had done other books that I liked and that seemed to have a voice that I thought would be appropriate. And so, yeah, it is a professional reader, but I've already had, I've already had people. I had one person say, wow, I love that audiobook reader. I read another book that he read. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, it's not me, but I think it's really well done. That's cool. I mean, you've done one and then now to have, I mean, especially when you're busy to have someone turn around and do that too. Um, it looks like it's Stu and you're right. He's got a bunch of Stu Gray, a bunch of books on here. You're right. Yeah. Wow. Well, hey, Neil, man, I appreciate it. this has been this has been a blast, um, you know, to talk to a social celebrity. Um, it, it's been awesome. Thanks for, you know, coming out here and hanging out and talking Japanese culture and social influence. Well, thank you, Casey. It's been a blast. But I find very few people that, you know, I can talk this much about Japanese companies and culture with. So I appreciate, you know, that that you're interested in as well. And you've been in Japan, you know, doing the karate and stuff. So Absolutely. I had a blast. And yeah, I mean, you know, this is what it's about. It's through conversation. You know, we learn about each other. We, we learn things that can help us in our career or with our work. Uh, yeah. And we learn more about ourselves when we describe ourselves, oh, totally. right? Yeah. It helps you best connect the dots and see your future. So it's always a great great experience so thanks for the opportunity yeah yeah good time hey next time you know next time we're both in the same area sake till one of us uh falls over you know right? sake gives me nope. headaches the next day well all. yeah that's true so a lot of people like they they move from beer to something called shochu i don't know if you've heard about it i was it. gonna just suggest that yeah yeah Korea, right? shochu. perfect shochu on the rocks awesome all right but that that's even crazier than sake so that's it a, is, that's it an is, epic night it goes and it's it's like natural. There's like you know purple yam shochu and yeah, it's good stuff, man. Awesome. Well, you know, for those listening, if you want to join us, uh, we'll we'll get you a glass. But if you've learned something, and I know you have, because I literally have two pages of notes over here, then share this with someone else. Be a thought leader. Be an influencer. Get this content out. Go check out Neil's book. Get that. Um, you know, just share the information. Be that person that that uh, other people look to to learn from. And again, Neil. Fantastic time, man. Let's stay in touch and I appreciate you. Hey, thank you, man. Awesome. Hey, for everyone out there listening, this has been the Hardcore Marketing Show. Catch y'all next time.